This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, I am joined by longtime Fremont High School baseball coach and assistant professor of education at Trine, Justin Bach. In a coaching career that has spanned over two decades, Professor Bach has leaned on his experience to develop a leadership framework that effectively leads youth athletes. As a coach, Professor Bach was a 200-game winner with multiple sectional championships and regional finals appearances. In 2022, he was honored by the Greater Fort Wayne Business Weekly for his contributions to education and coaching by his peers and students. In this episode, we discuss how he got his start in coaching, his philosophy for motivating and disciplining athletes, and advice he would give the students that want to break into high school coaching. I hope you enjoy the show. So we are here with Justin Bach. He's a professor in our School of Education, the Frank School of Education here at Trine. And I'm excited to talk with him, one, because we're back in the TBN studio, so it's nice to be talking with a faculty member face-to-face instead of over Zoom. Um, but two, we're going to talk a little bit about coaching today, and I don't know anybody better as we talk about kind of youth sport development and high school coaching, and then, you know, we can get into kind of education with college students, some of the differences there. But um Nobody better than Justin Bach, one of our own here at Trine. So, Justin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Brandon. Um, don't know if there's, it's no one better, but I certainly, <laughs> you know, I've got a lot of experience and made all the mistakes along the way. So, <laughs> learn through trial and error. Well, we're going to talk about your career and we're going to talk about how you were honored by Fort Wayne Business Weekly last year. But first, before we kind of jump into everything, tell us a little bit about your background in coaching and just some of the developments or some of the things that you've researched that you've been able to bring um, to your career. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is my, uh, I just finished my 25th year of, of coaching overall. <clears throat> um, I, I spent the first 19 years of my professional career teaching Seventh uh, through twelfth grade English taught all those grades at some point, and uh, obviously being a teacher uh, in the school corporation gives you a lot of opportunities to coach. So started right off first year coaching um, JV baseball, uh, freshman basketball, and middle school football, and so coached all three of those for for some time. But baseball, I coached all twenty five years. The last fourteen years have been as a varsity coach. I did do seven years of middle school football and. Boy, let me see, 11 total years of basketball at various levels. So so was that something that you knew you always wanted to get into was coaching? Well, you, you know, growing up in Indiana, everybody wants to be a basketball coach. You know, yeah, that myself was my, included. Yeah. <laughs> that was my passion. I came out of college thinking I'm going to be a varsity basketball coach. And, you know, schools, when they hire a young employee and they've got a lot of coaching openings, they're they're usually going to overburden you and put you in all these these situations. And it... It just so happened that the JV baseball coach had had resigned the year that I took over. The varsity coach was the guy I played for, a fantastic mentor, uh, Roger Propes, who actually just retired uh, as being AD at Fremont High School. Okay. Um, and so he reached out and, and for some terrible reason offered a 22-year-old the JV job. Um, so I kind of learned on the fly that baseball was not my first passion. Um, but over over the course of... I would say it was the longest tenured JV coach in Indiana, 11 years of being Rogers JV coach. I picked up a lot along the way and then slid into the varsity role 
when he became AD. And so that kind of brings up a question for me because, you know, you're on the teaching side here at Trine and I'm on the sport management side, but there's actually some crossover because I'll have students who come to me who say, you know, I'm dead set. I, I want to coach high school <laughs> athletics and maybe kind of educate them a little bit because this is where I'm, I, I think I'm a little ignorant on it. I know, you know, and some also want to be athletic directors. Sure. So I know to become a coach on the high school level, I would imagine schools probably prefer to have somebody who's already on staff that they could hire for, for a number of reasons. Um, so you might need a teaching license to do that. Um, and I know to become an athletic director, some schools want you to have an administrator's license. And I think mm -hmm. you have to have a teaching license for two years to do that. Now, I know that's a blanket statement. It's different, like with some private schools, charter and everything. Um, but, you know, if you had a student coming to you that said, you know, hey, I, I know I want to coach high school. I know I want to be a high school AD. What would be some of the advice and paths that they could go down? Yeah, well, I mean, so schools really do want, especially in their varsity, the leaders of the varsity programs, they, they really do want staff members. And it okay. works, I'll be honest, it's much easier. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much more effective if you're there every day. You know, um, I tell a story of I had a young man who played baseball for me that we, we really had a lot of conflict between the two of us during the course of his four years. Okay. Um, just some behavior things, some attitude things. And I felt like we butted heads quite a bit, but every day back in school, his locker was outside my room. I had him in English for a couple of different years. We didn't talk baseball and we kind of like patched that relationship up only to go back out to baseball and, and have that conflict. Uh, being a teacher, you can, you can keep um, tabs on your students' academic process, you know, progress and their, their behavior in school much better. Once I came to try and I wasn't in the school anymore, that was a little more difficult. Schools like, so they like having teachers in the, in the lead role. Well, Brandon, there's such a shortage of coaches right now that you're mm -hmm. seeing a, a, a big turnaround to where a lot of the coaches are lay coaches, meaning they're not employees of the school. Uh, I don't think it's ideal, but oftentimes those people are really passionate about it. And I feel like, you know, that's maybe better than having a teacher who's not passionate about it step into that role. So, you know, I would say if you really want to be a coach, become a teacher. Okay. Um, first of all, I think the best coaches are also, I mean, that's teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, in the, in the ed school of ed here, I often tell students, you know, the best lessons, some of the best lessons I learned as a, as a teacher were what I learned as a coach and brought it into the classroom. I mean, that's a great point. It's, it's a teaching field. It's just on a different yeah. field, right? When, yeah. you're, when you're coaching. And this may be a, a little bit of a loaded question. I hadn't prepared you for it. So, but, <laughs> oh, you know, okay. I'm going to ask away. Anyways, why do you think we've, we're seeing a shortage of coaches right now? Is, does it kind of correlate with the fact that we're seeing kind of a shortage of teachers right now as well? Um, actually, I think, in my opinion, what's, what's, what's changed, coaching, first of all, the time that's required has really exploded over the last couple decades. Mm. Um, I can remember a time when I first started coaching where football players played football and then they were done with football and they played basketball, or, you know, wrestled, and then they were done with that. And then they played spring sport. And then in the summertime, maybe they worked on one of them. Maybe they had a job. Maybe they were on the lakes chasing girls. You know, yeah. it just, it wasn't a year round requirement. Now, um, you know, if you're going to, to play football, you're going to lift all year around at minimum. You're going to have the seven on sevens all, all summer long. You're, you know, there's a requirement, baseball or basketball, all summer long requirements. And now with Indiana opening up six-week practice windows when you're out of season, those coaches can require that, 
that time also. Um, so one, the time of coaches that's required of coaches has has increased tremendously. So you have that. So if, if you're going to be a coach, it's not just because, well, I kind of enjoy the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be all in. Um, the other side of that, as far as teachers go, the requirements of them is all, have also increased quite a bit in the last mm-hmm. couple of decades. So your job requirements are much more. And so to take on coaching, which is also much more, it's pretty daunting. Yeah. And I talk about this just from my former past experience as a coach. You know, I coached, a, I coached one year of high school in some club in the AAU and did a little bit of junior high, but I did I, most of my time was spent coaching in college. Sure. And that's one of the reasons I got out of it just because of the time demands in it. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee, at least at that level, that I was ever going to make it to the D1 level. You yeah, know, and it just kind of takes time to kind of move up. So I would imagine if you're kind of getting, if, again, if you're dead set, I'm going to be a coach and, and, and I'm going to do it in high school, um, you probably have to have some pretty supportive family around you <laughs> as well that kind of buy into yeah. it. Yeah, I think my wife would agree, you know, yeah. during uh, the years of varsity baseball, um, you know, we start our preseason workouts in January. Uh, in the last few years, I also was a varsity assistant basketball coach. So. Wow. Starting January, February, and, and part of March until our season began, you know, I had basketball practice after school, run home for maybe 45 minutes, and I'm back up at the team building for baseball preseason stuff, you know, late into the night. Uh, we always joked that from January until June, she was a single mom, and I'd kind of reintroduce myself to her once uh, once we were knocked out of the, the, the state tournament. Yeah. Uh, so... Why do it? Like, why? Oh, do well, it? that's a great question. No, I mean, one, you have to have a passion for the sport. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's something, like I said, basketball was the first one, but boy, I fell in love with baseball. Um, that's one thing. And two, you really have to enjoy working with the students, with the, with the players. You, know, you said it. A lot, of, a lot of high school coaches are not putting out D1 or yeah. professional athletes. Um, so how do you get those kids to buy into the sheer amount of time? Uh, well, it's you, you get them to buy in because you have a great passion for working with them and trying to make them become better people. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna buy into your program when they see how much you buy into them. So you have to you have to have a passion for working with with kids. And so you've been rewarded for that passion, and you were featured in the Greater Fort Wayne Business Weekly last year in part of their Education Awards. So talk to us a little bit about that, about that honor, and, and everything that kind of encompassed that. Yeah, it was a surprise, and it absolutely was an honor. Um, so what I found out later on was uh, Tony Klein, who's the, the dean of the School of, of Ed, had talked to my athletic director, Roger Probst, who, again, was somebody I played for, coached with, and then the principal at Fremont High School, where I had been employed as a teacher for a long time. And the three of them then talked to a few of my players. Um, and so I, I had 10 seniors last year. So a number of those seniors, along with uh, Tony, and my principal, Mark Shrabandi, and Roger, all of them wrote um, letters of support, explaining things, and you know, sent that in and, and got 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 me nominated. So, was there um, what went along with that honor? I know you were featured there in in the paper, or I'm sorry, in, kind of in the weekly journal. There, um, anything else that kind of went with that, or, or what were some of the things that um, they talked to you about, or you got to explain about yourself? In the, yeah, in the uh, we had a dinner, um, mm-hmm. and there were some trying. Um, Winners also, uh, you know, Dr. Brooks was honored at the mm-hmm. dinner also, uh, and then a professor, I think it was uh, Anna Glinsky, I believe, okay. also was honored for her teaching here at Trine. So there was a dinner, and they they pulled you up front and got a chance to, to read portions of some of those letters. And um, to hear 
from a group of seniors that I'd helped. My son was one of those seniors. And so to hear letters written from, from young men that, that I'd coached in some form since they were about seven or eight years old, uh, to, to hear that was a, obviously a special, special moment. So where does that rank, you know, getting those honors <laughs> yeah. from, from players? You know, it feels great it to does. win, and I love winning. It's what I miss most about coaches. But, you know, when you kind of go back and you take inventory and you think about your career in coaching, you know, where do things like that rank as, you know, versus, like, you know, winning sectionals yeah. and regionals? Well, so being a small school, you, you, and one of the things you had kind of – we talked earlier about was, mm-hmm. was, you know, what are some lessons that you learn as a coach – you learn, especially at smaller schools, that because of how talent, talent and numbers will cycle, wins aren't really guaranteed no matter how strong of a program you've created. Mm. You're going to have some lulls. And so you better find successes elsewhere. So, I mean, we had a lot of success. Our last five years have been really successful at Fremont. And it, that was a lot of fun. But more exciting and more meaningful for me is to have a player, a former player at Fort Wayne who reaches out and says, you know, Hey, I haven't talked to you in a couple of years, but I just wanted you to know, this is something I took away from you. And this is, this is a big deal. Let's meet for lunch so we can talk. You know, those, those sorts of things are far more meaningful and long lasting than the wins. People forget the wins. You think yep. that you think this sectional or getting to this regional championship is a big deal. No one remembers two years later, but those, those wins with kids, those successes are the ones that, that, you know, the people who matter most, they remember those things. So you talked about, you know, you get it started in coaching at 22 and, you know, the, you're the longest tenure JV coach <laughs> you said in the state. Um, what were some of the lessons that you learned as a young coach and just over that decade, you know, before you kind of went into that head spot that you were able to kind of take with you and just made you a better coach? Yeah. Well, one, one becoming organized is super important. I mean, if, I, if you're going to run a good program, you've got to be organized. That was not a strength of mine early on. So that kind of enables a structure for you to learn and grow and become better. Uh, but probably, Brandon, the most important lesson that I, that I learned, it's not about, it's not about me. Yep. I think a lot of coaches, when you see a coach that's out there yelling and screaming because things go wrong, it almost feels like performative art. Mm. They're doing that because they're embarrassed embarrassed and they want everyone to know that this is not their this is not their fault what's going on is not their fault um and and you as a coach what you need is for this young man or this young woman to 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 build the confidence and and make the next play and if you browbeat them you've probably undermined any ability that they're going to have for success later in that same in that same competition so i learned pretty quickly to swallow that pride and mm. push down that embarrassment and develop a filter that says, okay, what do I need to say right now to get this young man in the right frame of mind so we can have success the next time a ball's hit to him or his next at bat or the next pitch? I can't wait till this episode airs here. <laughs> we're, we're, we're recording a week early because we're talking about this exact thing in my sports psychology <laughs> class. And we're talking about some of the differences between positive and, and negative reinforcement. And, and I tend to be more, you know, you're going to get better results with players the more kind of positive reinforcement mm-hmm. you give them. And then that doesn't mean you can't correct them or, or there's sure. things or every now and then, yeah, I got to be a little negative because you're not doing this correctly. Um, but, you know, that only lasts for that brow beating. Sure, we'll get results in a short amount of time. But long term, you know, what we want these kids to do is actually learn the sport. Why did you do this instead of doing this? Get yeah. better. And so when they're in that situation again, boom, they just do it. Right. They don't have to look to coach. So, um 
you know, you've wrote a blog article a couple of years ago for the Center for Sports Studies, just kind of about, you know, just styles of coaching um, and maybe kind of coaching the coaches a little bit. So what would be some of the things you would tell kind of a young coach coming up? Like, hey, if you're going to structure practice or you really want to get the best out of your players, like these are kind of the two, three, four things that you, that in my mind, in my experience, that you need to be doing. Yeah. Um, I think, one, decide what you want your culture to be. Mm. Uh, and I think we talk about that in the abstract too much. So, you know, you're going to hear coaches say, I want my team to be super hardworking. I want them to play with a great amount of joy. I want them to be tenacious. And, and those are great things to say. But my follow-up question with young coaches is, so what concrete steps will you take to create that culture? Um, that's the hard part is figuring out how do I set some things in motion at practice so that I get that culture to happen? Because I can't just keep yelling, you need to work hard. I can't just keep yelling, get to play with heart. You know, you have to decide what can I, what can I, what can I actually do to get those things? Um, and so, you know, I talked about organization. One thing that we decided to do was we're going to take seniors and have them be in control with baseball. There's equipment everywhere, field equipment, you know, playing equipment. We put seniors in charge of certain spots and I showed them how I wanted this organized and they were the ones who checked for me after practice to make sure. And then they would check in with me, say, yep, everything's back where it needs to go. Um, we had certain people that were in charge of every piece of equipment on a way to away games and on the way back to, you know, we just, there are processes put in place to make sure that we're doing what we want to do. Um, I was someone who didn't want to browbeat the kids. I did early on. I was a yeller early on. Yeah. So how do I stop that from myself? Well, one area, just to as an example of a concrete step, I decided that when I pulled a pitcher, often I was not happy when I walked out to the mound to pull a pitcher. And I, I wanted that person to understand how mad I was and how they'd let the team down. Like you almost, there's this feeling of wanting the kid to feel bad. And that's an awful approach that, that you're gonna lose a, a player's confidence. So I instituted, when I came out, I had, the kid had to give me a bro hug. So, so I, mean, I can remember the first player, I walked out to the mound to, to pull him and I wanted, you know, I think he'd walked a couple guys in a row and I wanted to be all over him for his lack of control. But instead I put my hand out, he gave me the ball and then through gritted teeth, we both, I remember as I'm going in, he says to me, Are we really going to do this? And I'm like, yes, we have to do this. And so, you know, we give the bro hug, which is just a, a second to let everyone know I'm not mad at him, even though internally I'm feeling it. And then we put into play when that's, that kid would go to another position. The, if he's going to the outfield, the outfielders had to go over and hang out with him. Okay. The infielders had to go over and hang out with if he's going to third base or first base. Again, kid feels bad enough. I don't need him to feel worse. And his teammates need to walk over and show the player and everyone in the stands they support him. They're not mad at him. You know, so I don't know. As a young coach, you've got to figure out what you want your culture to be, concrete steps to create it. And I guess the second thing that I, I illustrated there was if you have weaknesses, figure out ways to overcome them, you know. I, so, there, well, there's so many good things in that answer. I mean, you're talking about your seniors now. Everybody has their role. And if you, everybody buys into their role, it just helps the team and it helps the coach. You're developing norms, you know, with the, um, with, with the bro hug and, <laughs> and people kind of coming around and supporting and again, I made the same mistakes as a young coach too, kind of getting on kids and yelling and screaming because that's just kind of how what I was used to growing sure. up. Um, and it took me a while to realize like, oh yeah, the player already feels bad. Mm -hmm. Like they know they messed up. They don't need me to constantly browbeat them. Now, you know, again, 
there's times where attitude, player, effort, like there's certain yep, reasons where yep, I, I'm going to allow myself to get my voice is going to raise. Yep. Uh, poor treatment of teammates. There's certain things that are right, but when it comes to physical play in the game, um, you know, if 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 a kid, there's a really good coach, uh, AD at Prairie Heights, Brent Byler, who said to me one time, if I'm asking a, a player to do something and he or she can't do it, there's really only three reasons that they can't do it. One, they don't understand what I'm asking them to do. Two, they're physically incapable of doing what I'm asking them to do. Or three, they're ignoring me. Two of those three, they get my compassion and we're going to talk through mm-hmm. it. The third one, I'm going to raise my voice. Yeah. <laughs> You took the words out of my mouth, so that was perfect. And again, I I can't wait to play this episode in class. You know, one of the things I've heard from coaches, especially older coaches, and I don't know if it's a generational thing or not, but, you know, players have changed, right, Um, from, you know, back in the 80s, 70s, 60s, whatever it is. You know, is that true? Um, Have players changed? Do we need to relate with them different? Have parents changed? Is the culture, environment any of that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do think that the the culture of coaching and playing has changed. Um, what I think has happened is I think players have now had, you know, when you and I were growing, I mean, it was do what I say, don't ask why. And if you don't, I'm going to give you a, a, a foot in the butt. I mean, that's, that's how, that's how it was. Um, but I think players now have seen what good coaching is. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that those guys were bad coaches. I think some of the delivery methods were for a different time period where that was acceptable. I think now, now players, um, they, they know what it's like to be valued. They know what it's like, uh, to, 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 to be given an experience where they feel like they're growing, where they feel like they're partners in that and not just subservient, you know? Uh, so I think now that they see that that's, that's the expectation. So if you're one of those old school hard, I'm going to scream and yell at you and you're going to do what I say because I'm the one in charge you get resistance that just doesn't play anymore because they've now seen the other side of what, of how coaching has evolved. And I'm thinking of one coach in my past and in my mind who again was, was more punitive and you know, you can get some results, but as, as an athlete, now I'm playing not to screw up and not just out there playing free and being able to know like, Hey, mistakes are going to happen in a game. You know, if it's, you know, because I, I hustled and I made a mistake, it's one thing. But, you know, if I wasn't given effort or attitude, yeah. like completely opposite. What about on a different side? Now, you've been on this probably both sides. As a coach and a parent, you know, what advice would you give to parents of players? Because it does <laughs> feel like we're getting more of a push. Hey, kids have to specialize. We want to try to make sports a little bit more competitive at a younger age. We want to make it a little bit more, you know, I'll use the word professional at a younger age for kind of results of, you know, hey, we want to get a college scholarship. Or, you know, if they don't start playing baseball at five or six competitively, they'll never have a chance to play pro. Yeah, there's a couple things there. One, I, I mean, I can remember when travel ball first started kind of explode, and this, this goes for every sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd see the kids that put that time into travel ball who really were the top-end talent looking to get to college. Then it became, if you really want to have a successful high school career, you really need to start doing these travel things. And you'd see kind of a split in talent, those who did and those who didn't at the high school level. It's now down into lower, lower middle school. If you haven't started doing these things and playing, you know, all year round or playing a lot of games, there's a split in, in talent, you know, at the early ages. So there is that pressure. Now I would, and have told some parents of, of some travel ball teams that I've been a part of, if you really want a baseball scholarship, 
take all the money that you're going to spend on travel and instruction and, and equipment from age five on up and put it in a, in a scholarship fund. And there's your scholarship. Mm-hmm. I mean, baseball, <laughs> getting money for baseball is really difficult. I mean, D1, I think it's 12.8 scholarships for 35 people. Yep. You know, I mean, you're really not, it's a, you're, you're chasing a really difficult target. Um, so I would say you better, if you're a parent putting your kid into some sort of travel organization, you better be doing it for the right reasons. And it, it, it can't be, sure, they're going to develop better, but if it's to get a scholarship, you, chances are that's not going to happen. So you, you better be doing it because you really, I, I've told parents, kids trying out for a travel team, don't worry about how good the team's going to be. Interview the parents you're going to be around all summer long because that's, you're going to be with them at the hotels. You're going to be with them traveling and eating better have a good experience. Um, and it's really more about building these relationships that, that last for a long time, playing in different places and different, te- different, you know, opposition. Think back to the years, my son started traveling at eight of the people that we've played with. And all of them now have gone through high school. And we got a chance to watch these guys at different schools throughout the state. That was a great time. But, but if you're doing it for a scholarship, I had, I had a mom one time, kids were, I think nine say, I don't know how my, what's, my son's not going to get a scholarship. You know, he's hitting 200. He's hitting, well, there are also a lot of doctors who can't hit the curveball. So nine, he's got a 200 batting average, but I'm sure he could still be a successful adult at some point, you know. And you let something parents may not realize, I would put on these recruiting seminars when I was an athletic director, and there's only six sports (laughs) out of all of college athletics, a D1, D3, and an IH, you know, all that. There's only six sports, and they're all at the NCAA Division I level, where you're guaranteed a full-ride scholarship. Baseball's not one. Um, You know, for those who are are unfamiliar, baseball, they're equivalency sports. So, you know, like Justin said, you're getting 12 – equivalent of full scholarships that you try to parcel through 30 guys. Right. So you're getting a quarter, you know, a third, yeah. and you're lucky to get some money. Yeah. And so parents would ask, you're like, okay, well, how can my kid get an athletic scholarship? And my, my message is along the same as yours. I'm like, they probably won't. Yeah. And that's not me being a downer. It's just, that's no. just the numbers. Make sure their academics are all, are get your all, grades. Yeah, yeah. there there's way more money out there for grades than what there is for, for athletics. Oh, when I was recruiting in, in JUCO in, in AIA, and we had two kind of similar kids, and one was going to get more academic money than the other, even if they were just a little bit worse, <laughs> well, that's less money that's coming out of my recruiting budget. Absolutely. And, and I'm going to give that kid with the academic money a little bit more athletic money. Yeah, yeah, right? you're absolutely right. And I know we don't deal with it here at the D3 level, which is, uh, which is non-scholarship, but, you know, there's amazing opportunities here to get involved at trying or any other D3. Yeah. You're going to get an amazing education and you're going to be able to get a little bit more career ready than, you know, possibly programs at, at higher levels where you're putting tons and tons of hours and time. Well, and let's also be honest, if you're a parent of, of a student who's going through the high school and getting recruited, let's say, you know, D3, NAIA, you know, which is where the majority of the students that I'm dealing with, that's where the majority of them are going. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great to be wanted, but they often end up at a school that's not a great fit because they're a sport wants them. And, I, you know, I know just I haven't done any studies on it, but I, it's, it seems fairly high. The number of students who don't finish, they go to NAI, they go D3. And one year, two years in, they realize that they would rather pursue the academics. They get hurt. Um the sport isn't working out like they thought. And now they're at a school that they're not super interested in that they chose because, you know, and they weren't really getting either getting no money or getting very little money. And now they've kind of 
push things off. They're going to need an extra year of school. You know, so I think sometimes we make decisions because someone wants us. We get to put out the tweet that we were, we signed or, you know, everyone seems to be doing that these days. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think you're, that that's true. And, you know, what, let's kind of go down that line a little bit. We can maybe talk about social media. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's not, I, I don't know. But what do you think in your opinion, cause you're around them every day. Mm-hmm. What, what motivates, you know, 14 to 18 year olds right now? Cause again, I, I don't know how much players have changed. I know the, the culture and environment has changed and maybe that make, leads some changes to players, but you know, are they still motivated to go out and, and play hard and do their best? Are they motivated by social media? Is it <laughs> to get a college scholarship? Maybe everything. I don't know. Well, at a small school, I think I've seen two different types. One, you have those students who are those players who are just really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, that they, they're, they're good at the sport. They've gotten attention um, they've had success, you know, they're making all conference, they're setting records. I think some are driven by the success of the sport. Um, it's the other half though, that, that are out there because they enjoy being a part of something. Mm. Um, they enjoy the camaraderie. They, they love the kids they're around. Uh, I think if you've got a coaching staff that makes it enjoyable for them, that they feel valued, you know, I think some of these kids don't really have that anywhere else in their lives. And when they go out and be a part of that sport, which is again, a six month plus commitment. Um, and a lot of them are kids who may never find much success in the sport. You know, they're role players, peripheral players, bench guys. So why do they keep coming out there? I, I think it's because they really enjoy being a part of that. They're treated well by their teammates and hopefully they're, you know, hopefully they're learning things that go beyond how to, how to bunt or how to, you know, throw a curveball. I think, Coaches who who have found the value in coaching realize that the the biggest thing they can do for for their athletes is is help them grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many, you know, this is kind of cliched to say life lessons, but when you think about things like how much better athletes are at dealing with stressful situations because they're constantly in stressful situations. Like that's such a value of a sport. So when a young man makes a mistake, instead of making him feel worse, help him learn how to deal deal with that failure. You know, baseball, my players hear this all the time. It's a game of failure. So let's take this because you're not going to be a a professional baseball player, a D1 guy. So let's take this and learn how to apply it to our lives so that you're a better spouse, parent, employee, so that when things don't go your way, instead of becoming a a victim, you learn, let's work harder. You know, there's so many great lessons. And I, I think kids who maybe aren't great at the sport recognize if you're providing that for them, they kind of crave to be around it and crave to be around your staff and, and their teammates. I, I talk about that again all, all the time in class. Like, mm-hmm. what, you know, <laughs> only about one to two percent of high school athletes are going to get uh, any type of scholarship sure. to go play college athletics. And only about one percent of that are going to go pro. But everybody else is going to be, you know, they're going to be moms, they're going to be dads, they're going to be professionals and other things. So there's so many. I mean, what are we doing your sport for? Mm-hmm. Right. If they're not going to be going pro. There's so many life lessons that they're going to be able to use down the line. And as we survey kids and, and we kind of research them, you know, about 70% are quitting by age 13, exactly on what you hit on. It just went funny more. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, in this is in the, I'm editorializing, right? <laughs> no. but I, this is where I think we need some of our best coaches are at that youth sport level. And I understand there's so much more money and prestige going higher and, and I get it and I stipulate the point, but, you know, understanding that that's, 
help kids learn how to compete and, and be on time and sacrifice teamwork, all that stuff, and, and keep them accountable. But at the same time, make sure they're having fun yeah. so they continue to stay active. For yeah, the and you, you can hold them accountable, yeah. and you can still have, run a, a really tight ship and, and make it enjoyable. Yep. You know, um, that could certainly happen. You know, I talked earlier about concrete steps to make those things happen and, and, and that avoiding victim status. Mm. You know, I don't know how many times early on I would have an umpire or a, an umpire make a call and a, a player looks at me like, you know, I, I got hosed and now all of a sudden, you know, this guy's against me and they're going to complain about. And we had to figure out what are we going to do to overcome that because I, I can't stand people who fall into that role when things go against them. And so I know, first of all, I had to stop chirping as a coach because when I'm complaining, that gives them the right to complain to some extent. And so we started this thing called 11 on 9. So if we felt like we had a couple of bad calls against us, we would huddle everybody up and say, all right, it's 11 on 9 day. Those two guys <laughs> out there, they're against us. So what we got to do is we got to be better. We're going to have to beat 11. We're going to have to be just, we have to really bear down and be better today because everything that's borderline is going to go the other team's way. So you have a choice of being a victim here or of just really, you know, grab it, pulling your pants up and let's go. Um, and it really changed that mindset of instead of, oh, I got a bad call, shoulders slumped, I'm back in the box, you know, you're not doing this to me again. I'm not going to let you beat me. I, it was just a concrete step we took to overcome that. Yeah. But those lessons have to be there. Absolutely. And, and I love that kind of image of, of 11 on 9. Yeah. And hey, you know, it is what it is. Let's just go out and let's mm -hmm. just go play. So last question I got for you. So if a student's listening to this and, and they want to break into high school sport, um, you talked about being a teacher, whether they want to be a teacher or just, you know, hey, I want to break into coaching one day. How do I get some experience yeah. and, and just start building that resume so when I graduate, I'm able to go into a role? Sure. What advice would you give them? So I'd say right now there are two ways you can get involved. Um, first of all, I get contacted by local ADs regularly about, do you have any students who might be able to do this there now they're not asking for varsity coaches what mm -hmm. they're asking for junior high coaches freshman coaches assistant coaches um, sometimes those are paid positions sometimes they're looking for volunteer assistance they can work around your schedule so if you're if you're a student at trine and you're looking for that uh, there are opportunities right now while you're a student that you can go out and still coach um, great great experience um, to get at those lower levels the second thing i would say is right now Go out and start refereeing. Go out and officiate. First of all, there's a shortage of, offici of, of officials for every sport. Um, and that's not just varsity, but it goes all the way down into the lower levels. Lower levels, it's not going to be so tense. People aren't going to be screaming at you. So you can get that experience. And I guarantee you, if you officiate, you're going to be a better coach because you're going to be empathetic with the guy or the girl making those calls. So some great advice, go out and, and be a freshman coach. That's how I got my start. It was <laughs> yeah. one of the best years of my life or, or go officiate. So. Kids will love you too. They love young coaches. Yeah, they do. <laughs> um, so Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Award-winning professor, Justin Bach. Thanks so much for joining us and, and good luck this season. Appreciate it. I absolutely appreciate the opportunity to come and talk. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out our special March Madness episode on March 15th. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to producer Josh Hornbacher for his work behind the scenes. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast, broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the Center for Sports Studies podcast on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a five-star rating if you liked what you heard. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. 
Also, be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trine CSS. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.